Good morning and amen. I am so grateful to be a part of worship today. There is something absolutely beautiful when sons and daughters of God gather in community to seek after the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I am absolutely thrilled to be here. I thank you for your hospitality and I praise God for your pastors for the invitation to be here with you in their absence. And so thanks guys, I really appreciate it. Um, so would you join me in a quick word of prayer as we begin to wrestle through what a text that has challenged me and transform my life. Dear God, you are creator, you are the love of our souls. Through the power of your spirit, you continue to transform us into the people that you ultimately believe we can become. And so I'm grateful, oh God, for this opportunity to share and to speak your words. I pray, Lord God, that all that I say and do will point people toward you. I pray, Lord God, that these reflections during this sermonic moment would go forth, Lord God, with simplicity, with clarity, and with power. And when it's all said and done, Lord God, I'll be so careful to remind myself that it had nothing to do with me and all to do with you. It's only by your goodness and your grace that I'm allowed to, empowered to, encouraged to do any good work. So thank you, oh God, for the good work that you have begun in me. I pray, Lord God, that you continue to work in me, through me, and if necessary, in spite of me, so that your will might be done and that your kingdom might be experienced. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's this slogan out there, and it goes something like this. You may have heard it before. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. It's an English proverb credited to Joseph Kennedy, who was the father of the late president. It was even made into a song by Billy Ocean. I date myself, um, 1986, forgive me. Um, so, so, so the idea is kind of simple. It's not too difficult to understand. It's the idea that we ought to refuse to be um, defeated or overcome or overwhelmed or walking away. We ought to embrace challenges. We ought to carpe diem, seize the day, become bigger than our problem. This little slogan is a gentle reminder that whenever adversity comes, uh, we ought to rise to the occasion that we might come out victorious even more than conquerors. I mean, this little phrase, if I could translate it into a sort of contemporary moment, it's like we're supposed to become the wonder twins and stick out our arms and activate or we're supposed to be Wonder Woman or the Black Panther. You understand what I'm saying? When things happen, Wakanda forever, you're supposed to just, I digress, pray for me. Um, Something's supposed to happen in times of trouble, right? I mean, at the least, if nothing else, we ought to transform into a four, from a 14-wheeler into some sort of, a sort of superhero so that we might defeat the Decepticons. You get what I'm saying? There's something that's supposed to happen. When the going gets tough, the tough ought to rise up and get going. We ought to call some things to be. It reminds us that uh, we have an inner internal strength that ought to be released at just the right time. If I can quote an African proverb, it says that there are situations and circumstances that call you into being. You are born with a purpose, and when something happens, your purpose reveals itself. At a minimum, we ought to declare as followers and friends of Jesus that there is more to us than meets the eye. Are you with me? Um, and we get, we get it righteous, right? Because it's kind of like in the Bible. If you read 2 Corinthians, it has this wonderful text in chapter 10 where it says, Though we live in the world, we do not fight as the world does, that we have internal resources, divine power, to literally demolish strongholds. 
And this power is at work in each of us, all of us, because if the truth is told, miracles actually do happen. I mean, if you read the Bible from time to time, it has some great stories that are absolutely supernatural and miraculous. One of my favorite ones is this time when Jesus is teaching. It's a whole bunch of people there, right? And they run out of food. There's no cafe out there, so the people didn't know they should have brought a snack. And so they, they don't have enough food. And Jesus says, do we have anything to work with? And people are looking around, no, no, no. And a young guy says, well, I got a Lunchable. Yeah, can you use that? And Jesus like, thanks for sharing. And he says a prayer and he lifts it up and he takes the little fishes and the bread and everyone eats. The Bible's full of these miraculous moments. There's a story about David and Goliath. Some of us may have heard it in Sunday school, those little books you get as a kid with the pictures. And it says, David and Goliath, Goliath's a great giant and, and David's a little boy guy. And he says, I don't have any tools, but I got five smooth stones and he goes, Bunk, and then go down, there's the giant. So like the Bible is full of these stories that when the occasion arises, something on the inside gives us strength and power and courage and conviction, and we are on, right? And we get it righteous because it's in the Bible all kind of places. In the Second Testament, known as the New Testament in Ephesians, it says this, and I love it. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do so that when the going gets tough, the tough can actually get going and be successful. But when I read the Bible, and I read this story in John chapter 6, which I'm going to go to in a minute, it looks to me that the disciples, the friends of Jesus, those who are supposed to be walking the closest with God, got it a little twisted. They sort of misinterpreted this whole idea of the tough get going. Because the Bible says that when they heard this hard teaching from Jesus, they didn't sort of rise up to solve, to slay, to be more than a conqueror. That's not what they did. They literally got going, as in take exit stage right, like Audi 5000, I'm gone. Like, it's tough, I'm out. And so in this scripture, if we have it on the screen, John chapter 6, it tells this amazing story, and it says this. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of God the Creator, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your foreparents ate manna and died, but the one who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this hard. <laughs> who can accept it? <laughs> Aware that his disciples were grumbling, Jesus said, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples 
turned back and no longer followed him. Now, on the one hand, it's kind of hard for me to believe that they left, like, so quickly, so easily. I mean, there had been these great, amazing, unbelievable demonstration of Jesus' power and confirmation of his identity. Jesus had done some pretty amazing things. He had done some miracles in the chapters that precede this. Remember, water had been turned into wine at a wedding. That's pretty cool. A man who had been sick for 38 years was healed at a pool, and Jesus himself had walked on water. John the baptizer had proclaimed that Jesus the Christ was a lamb of God. God who takes away the sins of the world, how could they so quickly disregard, dismiss, and even distance themselves from him? I don't get it. But on the other hand, I kind of do. Because I've been in church work about 20-some years, and I know this does not happen at Soul City Church, but at other churches that I know of. (laughs) Church people can be funny. <laughs> they can be kind of funny style, kind of sometimey, you know what I mean? And so sometimes they do leave you out there by yourself. Uh, I get it. I get why they departed. Because the text says it very simply. Jesus said some words that were hard to live out. And I've come to this place in my life to recognize, and if not reconcile, that sometimes Jesus' words are simply tough to understand. It's going to take more than a cursory hearing to fully comprehend the breadth and the depth of what God intends. I mean, if the truth of the matter is told, many of us, some of us, maybe one of us, prefer gimmicks, right, and these simple formulas instead of this complex thing that Jesus does. I know this is not you, but I grew up in a rather conservative Pentecostal church, and there's nothing wrong with that, except for the fact that they gave me all these formulas, one, two, three steps, and this happens, five, six, seven, eight, turn around, and this happens. And so that was kind of my whole theology. I mean, when I talked about walking with Jesus, I summed it up in one phrase, don't laugh. I tell you, don't laugh. It was my truth. They say, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with the boys who do. And that (laughs) is the work of Jesus in your life, right? And so some of us like these gimmicks or these simple phrases that help us to know how to live out our faith. Most people don't want to do the hard work of trying to figure out what it means to have an authentic, relevant, loving faith in an ever-changing, global, postmodern perspective. Most people don't want to work that hard when they go to church. And so when Jesus says something complicated or complex, we tend to walk away from Jesus. And that's what the disciples did. They said, just too hard. Because sometimes Jesus' words are so risky and so radical that it goes up against tradition of our foreparents and even the church. Because sometimes you become a follower of Jesus and you go to church and it's great and wonderful, but sometimes we hear these teachings where we go to church and it's all about who can be excluded, who can be put on the outside. It's us and them and the Bible, the words of Jesus says, everybody's welcome and everybody's included. It's radical and it's risky to do the work of following Jesus. It was against the rules for folks to eat the blood of animals. They were like, Jesus is a heretic. He don't know the rules and the regulations. Jesus, this is too hard. So they walked away. It's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? 
It's so interesting to me that it was not a theological disagreement that caused them to walk away, right? It was the difficulty of the message itself. They left because it was just hard. Of course they know that Jesus did not literally want them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This was not some sanctified cannibalism. Are you with me? Everybody knew that. Right? Everyone should have picked up that Jesus uses this phrase of bread and drink because they had just got a free meal. And I think Jesus was saying, since we're talking about food, let me use that metaphor for a deeper spiritual meeting. Let me pull you in. Maybe Jesus used this language of bread and drink as sort of a precursor of a forerunner of the Last Supper of the Eucharistic meal, also known as communion. Maybe Jesus was simply saying, you got to have so much of my word and my life in you. It's like you've ingested it so that when you eat good food, it stays in for a while and comes out, that you eat the word of the gospel and it'll come out and change the world. But they just said it was too hard. They didn't want to work that hard. And so look, we're leaving. Now, I have to say, the first time I read this text, um, I judged those poor disciples harshly. Because I grew up in a tradition um, that was a little bit um, clear about who was right and who was wrong. Right? And, and, and so I was like, those are the bad guys, and how could they leave Jesus? And I judged them ever so harshly. And then I started walking with Jesus myself for real as an adult and realized that there are a few moments in my life, maybe in yours, don't raise your hands, so people won't look at you, um, <laughs> that you kind of thought maybe you ought to take a, a knee, walk away, kind of push Jesus to the side, right? And, and sometimes we, do it because of the demands of discipline. Like, it's a, it's a lot of work to be faithful to Jesus, right? I mean, this whole thing about you ought to pray regularly and, you know, give generously and serve faithfully, like, that's all good, except on the weekend when you want to sleep in. You understand? So it's a discipline of it. It's, it's hard work. Sometimes disappointment will cause us to kind of question our walk and our intimacy with Jesus, a uh, friendship that sort of dissolves or the one that never starts. Sometimes it's literally the distractions in our lives. It's, it can be a him or a her or a neighbor or a friend. Um, it could be the delays in our life when we're still hoping and waiting for God to move and we have unanswered prayer and you kind of feel like, God, I can't quite depend on you, so I'm going to try something else. Maybe for some of us it's simply the struggle with depression and other things that make it difficult to connect. And sometimes we tend to question God or want to walk away because it's simply hard. It's just difficult. When the going gets tough, sometimes the tough just go. But as I continued to walk on this journey of faith, I recognized I couldn't really condemn those disciples because a few years ago I had an experience that made me just like them. Where I stood and I had to assess my life whether I was gonna continue walking with Jesus. Now it's hard to say that, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but not that much because it's my truth. Like, I'm a pastor, like, you get paid to believe. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> like, that's your job. Like, 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 people expect you to be praying and fasting all week long and studying the scripture and come up with this creative, funny, lively story um, from the same 66 books of the Bible that's been around for hundreds of years. It's work, right? And so I was a little bit embarrassed, but I was like passionate. I had been doing it for like 20 years. I had been to seminary. I got all these degrees and all this kind of foolishness. And I was like, Jesus, I don't know. <laughs> so I was like, you know, maybe I like, don't want to walk all the way away from Jesus. Because maybe those older ladies in my home church with the little doilies on their head, they could be right about the afterlife. So I probably should be close enough to find Jesus just in case. 
and it wasn't because it wasn't it wasn't theological so much. I didn't doubt that Jesus was the Son of God. I didn't doubt that kind of stuff. But it happened some years ago when my father died, right? And let me tell you what happened. It, it, it was like traumatic. I mean, all death is traumatic. But I felt like this one was like a dagger in my heart. Like God just failed me utterly because I was going my way to a mission trip. Like as a good Christian girl, right? So I do these mission trips usually once a year, once every other year where I get on planes or I do it locally, but been in South Africa, been in Arizona, been in Mexico three, four, five times. Like I go and give my life to God for a week or so. And so signed up, a group of us had gone, we're going to build this house in Cape Town, which we ultimately did. But it takes 26 hours to get there, right? And so I'm on this plane traveling to go uh, to do this mission trip. Did I mention that I work for Jesus? So I was not in business class or first class, right? I was in the coach section where there's seat, seat, me, and two more seats, right? So for 26 hours, I'm suffering for Jesus, right? In this little chair, trying to get to South Africa to do his will. I get off the plane, and my phone is blowing up. It's my brother. And I'm like, why are you calling me? Because if I pick up, I've got to pay these long-distance international fees. Text me, man, 50 cent a text. And so, but he's calling me, and he's calling me. I finally pick him. I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, I got to tell you something. And I was like, What? He's like, no, no, serious, I need you to be serious. I need to tell you something. And I was like, what? He's like, dad died. I'm like, what are, you, what are you saying? You know, what are you saying? He's like, no, dad died. I'm like, are you saying to me, while I am squished on a plane for 26 hours, flying to South Africa to do the work of the Lord on a mission trip, my father died. The same guy I saw three, four days before who said, go and do the work of the Lord. That guy's dead? He was like, yeah, there were some complications from the surgery, and all of a sudden, his body sort of just starts shutting down, and we couldn't get to you, and we couldn't do anything, so he's gone. I'm in a foreign country. My father has passed away. I'm literally picking caskets online because I can't get back home. I just landed. It would take three days to get back. It was awful. I'm sitting there doing the work of the Lord, right? And I was offended by God. I felt like not that God didn't just let me down. God did something that I just couldn't believe. Like, I'm doing your work. You mean you can't keep my father alive? Come on now, man. Like, what, what are you doing to me? I was so hurt and so offended. I had to do the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And one of the hardest is I buried my father. I preached his eulogy, and it was my job to close the casket on my dad. And I did it. Because I put on my big girl outfit and I did the thing. But I went home secretly with an ought against God. I was so mad. And I couldn't really show out because I'm like a pastor person. I had to keep preaching. Right? So I said to myself, okay, I'm going to keep preaching. But let me tell you what, Jesus, I don't even like you no more. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to find me an exit strategy. So while I'm preaching, I'm thinking how I can get out of ministry, seriously, simultaneously. And you might ask, well, how did you preach? What did you preach during that time when you weren't talking to Jesus? From an old friend of mine I read in a book, I preached about the God I used to believe in. I went to lectionary preaching because they give you verses during the lectionary. It's a way to study the Bible. And I said, preach on this. And I found good news every week for people all the while thinking, how can I stop doing this? How can I stop doing this? 
I mean, how could God expect me to keep serving his people when God couldn't even watch over my father? Are you kidding me? And the truth be told, uh, I had just buried my stepmother three months, let me see, she was September, about six months before. So I had buried two of my three parents, right, in six months, and you cannot do this. You want me to keep preaching and keep having a good attitude around people? How could you let me down, God? How could you do this? And you really expect me to keep walking closely with you? Now, of course, you know, I grew up in the church, and so I knew those Bible verses we learned in Sunday school, and I felt all kind of guilt and shame. I kept hearing my Sunday school teacher, nothing wrong with Sunday school, but I kept hearing my Sunday school teacher going, trust in the Lord with all thy heart and lean not into thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge him. He will direct your path. You don't know that. That's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We got little gold stars when we memorize this stuff. And so I kept remembering Isaiah. I know the words of Isaiah, for, for my thoughts are above your thoughts, and my plans are above your plans. Yeah, right. Jeremiah 29. 11, for I know the plans I have for you, thus saith the Lord, to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope in the future. I knew all those verses, and it didn't work. Jesus was asking me to trust him. Even when he allowed something I could not reconcile, I could not believe. Jesus was suggesting I could be faithful even when I didn't understand his ways. God was requiring me to envision an immediate future that was radically different than the way I thought my life was going to be, and it was hard. And I don't know about you, maybe you've never been there. On that place, in that place where you're on the brink, on the verge, at the edge, wondering if life is worth it, wondering if life with Jesus is worth it, considering giving up, about to go back to the life that you just left, suspended between faithfulness and foolishness, unsure of whether the current path is actually going to take you to your destination, thinking and pondering and scheming, peeking over the precipice of apostasy. Convinced that the journey ahead is just too hard, heartbroken, faith shattered, theology stretched, looking for a way out. That's where I was. I mean, I had it so bad, I thought, I got other skills besides ministry. Yeah, I've been doing this for 20-some years. I could preach and teach, but I probably could give people the basket at the local store and say, welcome. I got other skills. I seriously trying to figure out a space where I could just be hurt and wounded and not on display. And the Bible said that Jesus wondered if his original disciples were gonna leave too. Because I've discovered that proximity and intimacy doesn't always translate into certainty. That experience and longevity doesn't exempt you from a lack of clarity. Verse 67 says, do you wanna leave too? Jesus asked the 12, you going too? See, we're all going to have a moment, a minute, or season in our life or an occasion or opportunity when we have to answer that question for ourselves. Are we going to go forward or are we going to walk away? Now, I hope you don't have to answer that question in the midst of deep pain or heartache or death, but I have discovered in my life walking with Jesus, it is a series of yeses and opportunities where I could have said no. We're all going to have to Ask ourselves, are we really serious about tending our souls? If we're really committed to developing, transforming relationships with Jesus, if we really want to advance in leadership, we're going to have to say yes again and again. Because if we read the Bible, we'll discover that God has a reputation for asking people to do hard and sometimes ridiculously sounding things. Like he asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. That sounds crazy to me. 
The Bible says that Hagar was told to go back to Sarah, her mean mistress who despised her and didn't treat her well. That don't sound right to me. That's like going back into an abusive relationship. And I never recommend support or encourage such things. And if you're in that place, don't you think I'm saying you should go back? Because I'm not. I'm saying what the Bible says, some strange things in here. Esther had to go face the king on behalf of her people whose lives were threatened. Joseph spent years in jail. Rich man was told to sell everything. Jesus had to go to the cross, and God wanted me to keep preaching. I was so ready to go. Because, see, when I was growing up, nobody ever told me that darkness is normal. It's regular on the journey. It's part of life. I thought I had fallen off the whole Christian caravan. I thought I was a chief among sinners simply because I had doubt in God. I thought, well, I must not have any faith at all. No one told me that this darkness is light. This certainty in question was the ebb and natural flow of faith. I remember some years ago reading some of the letters of Mother Teresa, who I think was a saint working with lepers in Calcutta. And in her private journals, she wrote this prayer to God, like, God, I don't know if I even believe in you. I'm not sure what I'm doing is pleasing you. Mother Teresa has doubts? Nobody ever told me. Nobody ever mentioned that most of the times we excel in a solar spirituality. We know how to love and serve God when things are going well and it's bright and light outside. They never told me there was a complementary called lunar spirituality, a kind of faith and walking with God that is nurtured and perfected only in the darkness. There are some lessons that only happen when his lights are out. Because when you're in a dark room, it changes your eyesight. You all know if somebody turns the light down, something happens in your eyes, and you can see things you've never seen before. There's an internal and external adjustment. And that's what happens in lunar spirituality. When the lights go out, you get to see stuff you had missed when it was light outside. Nobody told me that. Nobody told me that faith was greater than simple formulas. One plus one equals two. Turn around, raise your hand. I thought that if I faithfully followed the rules that I had inherited, I can check out the boxes and somehow God would exempt me from the doubt, the pain, the darkness. That's what I thought. Nobody ever told me like Richard Foster says in his prayer book, pray what you can, not what you can't. I didn't know that was satisfactory prayer, so now I've kind of adapted. Believe what you can, not what you can't. Go on the faith you got, because that's all I had. So I was preaching and teaching every day and plotting my exit strategy. I thought to myself, it probably take me about three to six months to figure out what next is. And so I kept on going and I kept on pondering. But during this time of darkness, there was something else I did besides distance myself from God. I thought maybe every now and again I should return back to some of those practices that I did as a child. So I showed up for daily devotions with an attitude, but I showed up. I opened my Bible, I said, I'm reading today, Jesus, not that I'm talking to you. But it pops up on my phone, I'm supposed to read these eight verses today. So I read the Bible, and I read a scripture, and I went away mad. And then I came to this text, and I kept reading it. It didn't stop at verse 67, there was a verse 68. Huh, the Bible keeps speaking. And it said, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I asked myself, at least where are you going? Like seriously, where, where, where can you go? It occurred to me, 
I don't know why it took me so long. It occurred to me that God is everywhere. That everywhere I would turn, that I would have a sense of awareness of God. I'd be like a little toddler playing hide and seek under the dining room table. God's like, you think you're hiding, but I see you. Like, where could I go? As soon as I would run into another human being, somehow I would be in trouble because we all display the glory and the goodness of God and made in God's image. And so every time I see another person, it reminds me that God was loving and real and present. Where would I go where two or three are gathered? God is there. I thought maybe I'd go to the uttermost parts of the earth and maybe I could run away from God, but then it occurred to me if I went left, God would probably counter right. And if I went southeast, God would kind of come northwest. If I went to Asia, I'd run into God in the secret house churches. Or if I went to South Africa again, I would sense God at the Cape of Good Hope where the oceans collide. If I went to Alaska, I would see the beauty of the glaciers and I would literally have to declare God's glory. If I hid in the barrios of Sudamerica, I would likely hear Gloria Adios. If I tried to be silent, the rocks would cry out, what would I do? I was like the reluctant prophet Jonah who tried to run away from God. I remembered in that story, God did a Pinocchio on him and swallowed him up in a fish. <laughs> and he had to go preach anyway. <laughs> and then it came to me that verse in Psalm 139 which says this, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, you're there. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. And it occurred to me that God is everywhere, and God has everything, and God has everything that I need. The psalmist declared the earth is the Lord and everything in it. It occurred to me that I actually breathe God's air. I'm warmed by God's sun. I need God's gravity so I don't float off the planet. I live on God's good earth. I eat the food grown the same soil from which God created humanity. I walk on God's property. I mean, when I need a savior, where am I going to go? Because salvation comes through Jesus. If I need healing, where do I go? God is Jehovah Rapha, a great healer. When I need a provider, where can I go? God is Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. God is everything, even the words of life. And Simon Peter jumped forward and said in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? And so I've discovered I'm much more like Simon Peter than I realize. Because I understand that God has the very words of life. What God says about me and what God's word speaks to me through the Bible is important. They mean something. When God speaks, I have, I have to at least consider what God's saying. It's really a shame I, because I kind of tried God. And it came back to me that it kind of works. I realized that God was really better than Siri. That God is really my GPS navigating when I go astray. God says, redirecting, recalibrating, reconnecting. Go left, go left, go left. And so since I couldn't turn away from God, I just let God hold my arm like a little child. I wouldn't hold God's hand figuratively. I let God hold me like this and kind of drag me along the way you do with a stubborn, you know, five or six-year-old in the store where they don't want to go where you want to go. You just grab them up and like, we're going this way. That was me. And so I began to think about my situation. And I searched all over and I couldn't find a way out or a next place to go. So I decided, okay, I guess I'll just stick with God. Not that I was happy, but I made a choice. Because I come to realize that God actually doesn't just love me. God actually likes me. Me. And chooses me even when I don't want to choose God back. And so I chose God again.
because I realized as I kept wrestling with my own deep sadness and deep disappointment, deep hurt and deep loneliness, um, I didn't want to leave before I heard the end of the story. Because when I read this text and Jesus' disciples are walking away, if they had a left at that moment, you have to keep reading the rest of the scriptures. It says, they would have missed the raising of Lazarus. How cool is that? They would have missed the comfort of Jesus. They would have missed the promise of the Holy Spirit. They would have missed the blessing and the prayer that Jesus declared. They would have missed the personal appearance of the resurrection of the Christ. If they'd have left then, they would have missed him. And my friends, if you're in that place kind of trying to figure out, should I go forward or go away? Should I go deeper or go higher? And you're thinking you might want to exit, I'm begging you, I'm beseeching you, just keep at it. Because I don't want you to miss the good part, which can be the end of your story, and to see how God is going to work everything out for a good or a purpose in a way sometimes that we don't prefer. But if we stay with it long enough, we position ourselves for God to be real to us again or for the first time. So let me tell you what happened to me. While I was struggling, going through the motion, preaching the best gospel I could come up with every Sunday, not only did I kind of read the Bible and kind of show up for prayer every now and again, I had this thing called Sabbath that I took on Mondays. It's a time where preachers kind of take a day off, and I was on Sabbath, and the Sabbath, I kind of, it's synonymous with sloth to me, amen? And so I would sit around the house and kind of do nothing, not move my car, just kind of be there, just so on this particular Monday, it was a Sabbath, my phone rang again. And this time, this lady on the other said, hey, are you, is this Miss Barrymore? I said, yes, it is. And I'm XYZ calling from XYZ place. And they said, you're on a list, right? Yeah. I've been thinking about this for about seven years. Been going to classes, paying money, going to lectures, being disappointed. They said, you're on a list to be a mom, right? Yeah, that's me. Well, there's a mother at the hospital who's decided not to parent. And we wanted to know if you want to be a mom today. I said, yes, 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 I did. I, I, yeah, 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 yeah. So I hung up the phone, called my girlfriend. I said, I think today's the day. She said, day for what? I said, I'm going to be a mom today. See, what I didn't tell you guys, I had been praying for a really long time, right? Really long time, and I gave it up on prayer and gone to classes, and kids came and didn't come. It was just a painful experience. So I kind of stopped praying that one, right? Because I was like, this is not going to happen, right? So that Monday I said yes, and my daughter came home. I'm somebody's mom. I'm somebody's mom. See, if I'd have left so soon, I wouldn't have been there Monday doing what preachers do on Monday, to get a phone call. Now, God could have probably done it a whole bunch of different ways, but for me, it kind of collided. I was lamenting family so deeply and felt like God had abandoned me, and all the while, God had been preparing me to become a parent. A year after I buried my dad, I became a mother, which was one of the deepest longings of my heart that had been in the background for years. And I thought it would never happen. That's the best gift I've ever gotten. And you know when it happened? At the middle of my darkness. 
in the middle of my wanting to walk from God, God was like, you have no idea. I'm working behind the scenes in ways that you don't even realize. I didn't forget the thing you asked me seven years ago. I didn't forget the thing that's in your journal. I am answering prayers. You don't even have the courage to pray anymore. And so now I'm here with God, not because I've been so great or even so faithful. I'm here because I decided that there might be light in the darkness, and it was. And these have been the best days of my life. Parenting and pastoring and figuring out how to have a faith that operates between bus arrival and school pickup and having a vibrant devotional life in between swim lessons and, you know, JoJo Siwa dance parties. Yeah, this is my life. And it's good. So don't give up. Keep walking with God even when it's hard. Because I believe it might not be as big as this miracle of becoming a parent. But it might be smaller miracles and smaller steps that take you to the light. There's life even when God does or says something really hard. You can make it. Because I believe the end can be good. Let us pray. Lord, we are still here in the midst of darkness and disappointment and despair and delay. We come, Lord God, because we hope and trust and believe that you are with us in the, every ebb and flow of our lives. In the darkness and the light, you are there. When we're close and not so close, you're still there. We believe and trust, God, you're working behind the scenes to make good out of bad, to make light out of darkness. And so, God, we want to show up again. Give us courage and the strength to believe, to hope, to trust, to see, even when we don't understand. We are your children. We are your disciples. And we believe you see us, even when we don't want to see you. Thank you for all the good and great gifts you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.